Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another great podcast. The First Draft Podcast with ESPN experts Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Field Yates, keeping tabs on the latest in the NFL draft every Wednesday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for watching us on YouTube when you do, but we're not on YouTube this time. No big deal. Rate us. Review us. Give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, I'm going to tell you something I think is a big mistake that the NBA is engaging in. Also, we have got your voicemails, but first... Hey, man, I believe that women's basketball had, for lack of a better term, its full-on coming-out moment over the weekend. And I want to be careful about this, right? Because one thing that makes me uncomfortable in talking about women's basketball on a number of levels is, A, well, one, I typically don't watch that much of it, right? Like, I'm not in a position to speak about it with expertise, like when we when I talk about what's going on here, I'll talk about some bigger stuff. I can talk about just as a fan, as an observer, but like there's ways I can talk about the NBA and the NFL that I can't talk about women's basketball, right? That's number one. Number two, I've always been a little uncomfortable with the push that comes from a lot of people wanting people like me to talk specifically about the WNBA is where it comes up, but just women basketball in general. And I get it. And the idea is that if somebody like me talks about the sport, then it helps to legitimize it in the eyes of other people, specifically in the eyes of men, which then makes it bigger, then gets in more eyeballs, so forth and so on. The difficulty I have with that is I don't think my legitimacy should matter or the idea that I legitimate this is problematic to me right if you enjoy women's basketball you enjoy women's basketball I don't think that expecting men to like it is is the smartest play you know what I mean like it's just I don't I ain't need white people to like rap you know what I mean and by the way the more white people showed up the worse the party got that is a statement of fact nothing against white people but you get what I'm saying right like So when a lot of this, and I also, and this for me is big, I don't want to get mixed up with you jokers posting your pictures in your orange WNBA hoodies. I do not. And what I mean by not wanting to get mixed up with them is, yeah, the hoodie's dope, right? Yeah, it's cool you down with the WNBA. But there was such a strong, hey, look at me. I'm an ally. And I ain't into this whole allyship concept. I'm a person, right? I like what I like. I believe what I believe. I think what I think. But I ain't got to put a show on to show you I'm down for the crowd across. Like, I think you just live it. I think you do it. And then you go from there. I just didn't want to get confused with any of those people. Sometimes I enjoy turning on women's basketball. And I enjoy it, which is the way that most people consume sports. And honestly, I think is a satisfactory level for what we're talking about here, right? I don't want to make it into something bigger. But at the same time, I understand why the people who advocate for women's basketball want it to be something bigger. I get why they want these things. They want it to feel as important, for lack of a better term, as the men's game feels to people. Well, this is the part that I could give you. I ain't watch a minute on Saturday of the national semifinals games for the men. I find it highly unlikely I'm going to watch that game with UConn and San Diego State. I went out of my way to stay up on Friday and watch that game with Iowa and South Carolina. And I scheduled my day Sunday around watching Iowa and LSU. Right? That's what I did. Because it was intriguing, interesting theater. Like, what was provided was there. High-level women's basketball. And when I say high-level, I mean when we get to these stages of the game, right? There does still seem to me, in the bit that I watch women's basketball, 
to be a greater level of variance between, say, the number one team and the number 20 team than there is in the men's game, right? And then when you start stepping it down or whatever, like that still seems to be present. I ain't at the point where I can just watch any old body watch it. Hell, I can't watch any old body watch men's, but I couldn't even watch the final four, right? So just so we get this clear, but that's, you know, that's kind of where we are in this. So I'm not pretending like I watch everything, but you get me to a final four situation, I'll do it. And the other reason I'll do it when you get me to a final four situation is the atmosphere of the women's final four now has so greatly surpassed the atmosphere of the men's final four, right? There are a couple of big reasons why I think that this is the case. Reason number one, this is huge. They play it in arenas, right? Playing those games in domes just because you can move all those tickets does not make for a better product. It's probably not in the arena, but definitely not on television. It does not make for a better product, right? Number two, and I think it's tied to the dome arena part. When you go to stuff like the Super Bowl, you get there and you realize basically everybody there got their tickets for free. Now, there's a few people that went out there. You know, their team was going to be in it. They paid some money on the street to get there. But by and large, it's corporate, right? It's people who were there because they got to deal with this. They got to deal with that or whatever it is. And then they go to the game. So you wind up with a collection of dispassionate observers. You're there kind of to say you're there. I don't know if y'all was watching that game on Sunday or on, or the game on Friday that I watched and wasn't nothing dispassionate about that, right? Like, I remember, I've been, I don't have the lengthy track record that most sports journalists have of, like, all the events they've gone to and all the events that they've covered, right? Like, I don't have that list, but I've been there for some pretty big stuff, right? I've been there for NBA Finals Game 7s, right? I've been there for big NCAA tournament games. I've done three Carolina Duke games. You know what I mean? Like I've been in atmospheres, but no atmosphere that I've ever been in has ever been as electric. And I remember the exact date. It's February 14, 1995. My high school was playing against Brenham High School for the district championship. Winner got it that day in they gym. And I ain't never been in anything that felt like that ever before in my life. All those people crowded in there everything that felt like the stakes were and just the level of investment from everybody who happened to be there. I've never been in anything like that. And that game wouldn't have felt as good if we had, if they had played it like at one of the colleges nearby. Like it felt like it felt because it was in that little bitty high school arena, you know, having the smaller thing. It's kind of like when you go to a club that's too big, and the energy just spreads out too much, and it doesn't feel like nothing, but when you're in one of them little hole-in-the-wall joints and everybody's ground up on each other and everything, it feels different. And so there was something that just felt so much more organic about the environment that the women's tournament had, right? They were ripping and roaring from the very beginning. You saw the intensity in the players on Sunday from the very beginning of that game, and it continued the whole way. You felt that intensity even while LSU was blowing their doors off. You still felt that intensity, and part of it is because you got Caitlin Clark on the other side with that I can shoot from the parking lot stuff, and so you feel like the game was never out of You never felt like anything was out of it, right? Now, as the game was going on, those were the things that I showed up and wanted to talk about from that game because there was just a lot of things that I noticed that I think made it interesting. Um, another thing that I think is interesting, at least in watching that from what I could tell, I noticed that they had found ways to do a lot more like isolation, like post-isolation in a way that you no longer really see in the men's game. And part of it is because the idea in the men's game is that a post-up is no longer efficient enough because of the prevalence of the three-pointer. Now, last night or Sunday's game would not give you this indication. However, the math is different for women shooting three-pointers. Like coming into this game, LSU was a 19% three-point shooting team. What that means as a result is you're not playing for three-pointers nearly as much, right? The expected value of shooting that three ain't the same. It thereby incentivizes inside play more. And you saw that from both sides, right? That having that, like you have that element that is missing and that comes with a certain level of intensity. And there's more of that that I'll talk about in a second. But that was one major factor in the game that I noticed that was different now from what the men's game has become. Like, the half-court game in women's basketball just seems to use a lot more of the court and thereby becomes a lot more interesting of a game. Like, there's some dynamic problems that we got with men's ball. The women's ball, 
I wouldn't say they've solved it, but naturally in terms of what the dynamic is, a lot of them correct themselves, you know? So I just, yeah, I was watching and I was just seeing a lot of those things and I really wanted to get into talking about those things, but y'all had to get on the internet, didn't y'all? Y'all had to trip all on the wrong thing. And what you tripped on was Angel Reese going a little too far. And by the way, I don't just want to say that y'all tripped on Angel Reese going a little too far because that sounds like I'm saying that the white people was the only people that was tripping, okay? I want to give you an example of something that happened in sports a while ago, but we'll come back here. I believe it was the 2012 Olympic Games. And Lolo Jones had gone over there, and this is when she tripped on the hurdle at the end. It was a real heartbreaking moment and everything else. And you know everything that come with Lolo Jones, right? But Lolo seemed to not get along very well with some of the other members that were on her team. And you got Lolo Jones looking like Lolo Jones looked and crying about all this stuff and everything else. And then they go to talk to her teammates about some stuff, and her teammates are looking like her teammates look, which is not the same way as Lolo Jones looks. And uh, Parker, I believe you can help me because you may not remember this. However, um, after your little stint at Morehouse, I imagine you have seen school days before. Yes, I have. It was that situation. <laughs> it was the thems and the thems. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Dan, Google school days. It'll all answer itself. But it was clear. What was going on here, right? And I'm watching it, and I'm watching as all these white people don't understand the dynamic that's at play here because they think we are all the same. But I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. There's, there's a lot going on. This, this ain't just got to do with track. It's got to do a whole lot more. You know what I'm saying? Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the thing. Okay. So we fast forward to this. And I watched the game on Friday night. Now, I need to be honest. I don't read that much coverage of women's basketball. So I don't know how people talk about these different teams. I don't know how people talk about, say, Iowa. I don't know how people talk about South Carolina. I don't know how people talk about LSU. So for all I know, there has been a long-running, racially-centered narrative about the ways that South Carolina plays or the way that LSU plays or the way that Andrew Reese carries herself and all of that. I personally have no idea and I do not want to invalidate the idea of how anybody feels or what has happened. I just personally don't know if that's the way that people talk about it. Got it. But I knew damn well when I turned on Iowa, South Carolina, and I saw a team with all white girls but one, and that one that isn't white, if you read her last name off a piece of paper, you would think they was white. And then I looked over there and saw Leah Boston with them pink braids. And I was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. This has a, this has a, this has a chance of uh, 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 turning into something that's not really about basketball. Oh, man. That might really happen. Oh, man. The other thing, and this I know from working at this company for a very long time. And this is something that people need to understand when you start evaluating what's going on in this. We have not figured out how to promote two women's basketball players at one time. We are not there. We can only do one. And I realized that we could only do one. It was one of those years where uh, Baylor was going in the Final Four undefeated. And it was all about Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner. I don't remember who they lost to. It may have been Notre Dame, but I don't remember specifically, right? But I know they lost and Notre Dame made it to the championship game. And that's when the legend of Skylar Diggins was born. I had never heard of her before then, but they were in the national championship game and she became the story right then. By the way, for reasons that may not have had that much to do with basketball, but boom, right there, she became the story. They could not talk going into that final four. Oh, we got Brittany Griner at Baylor. Oh, we got Skylar Diggins at Notre Dame. No, we went straight to one. And then when the one was gone, we just pushed her away. We can't conceive of two I don't know why I don't have the answer for that right but we can't conceive of two the reason that I bring that up and the reason that I think that's important to talk about here is the Caitlin Clark stuff going into the final four while she was incredible leading up to it if you did not 
follow women's basketball. And again, I say to someone who I would not say I follow it, but I know enough to know, right? It was a matchup of this year's player of the year and last year's player of the year. That's not how we talked about that going in. It was, come see Caitlin Clark. At least from the covers that I saw. It was not about two people. It was about one. So, you got an undefeated team with the National Player of the Year from the year before. Right? Probably the most dominant program in college basketball right now. And what we talking about? The other team. And the other player on the other team whose whole team is white except for one all right i'm just laying out for you the facts of the situation right now okay the fact that caitlin clark got all the push again i don't think is entirely about race because i just gave you another example of how this works right i don't think it's entirely about race however This has been a big year for women's basketball. These numbers have been huge. A lot of new people, and I would consider myself largely to be one of them, right? It's not like it's the first time I ever showed up to the party, but, you know, I don't come every year. A lot of new people showed up to the party. And when a lot of new people showed up to the party, they saw a team of black girls, and they saw a team of white girls, and they saw all the hype going in one direction and we all reverted back to old habits from top to bottom that is what everybody did man people were watching that like it was a boxing match like we right there we was right there because see this is something else that women's basketball provides that the men's game no longer gives us and you know what that is lots of white people lots of them Think about this for a second. White people treat, like I said this line before, white people act like basketball the same way they act about the name Tyrone. After a while, they looked around and they was like, you, y'all black people can just have it. We don't want it no more. That's what they did. I don't know when it was that white people looked up and was like, yo, I bet the fifth black Tyrone, we off that. We ain't doing that no more. That's y'all's. That's what they did with men's basketball. Ain't no real denying that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we ain't really got that. You go. Like, yo, you watch Succession. You know Cousin Greg is like 6'8". I bet he ain't never tried to hoop. His 6'8 ass looked at basketball and was like, no, we don't do that no more and went to acting class. You know what I'm saying? Like, they just gave that up. Women's ball. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Hadn't gone that way, right? Now, I'm one of those people that pushes back and is like apprehensive and reluctant about this idea of the black people are naturally better at basketball nonsense. I don't, I don't engage in that, okay? I just don't. Like, there's a lot of problematic reasons for that. But I see why you would think that. You feel me? I get why you would. You, don't, you can't make that one-to-one relationship in women's ball. There have just been too many good and excellent white women playing basketball at all the positions for you to try to make this argument that like this is a black people game like you talk about basketball is a black sport men's maybe you could try to make that play you can't really do that over in the women's game there's a number of reasons why i think that's the case that'll take me too long but you can't really do that right you ain't gonna have no situation in men's basketball where you're gonna have a team that looks like iowa playing against a team that looks like south carolina it's just not gonna be the case right but it is still basketball. And basketball was still one of the last fronts of racial athletic warfare. It was still there. And then all these people still showed up to watch a basketball game. And it wound up looking like the last scene of Hoosiers. That is what we got. Right? I don't think people quite realize it, but it was a whole lot of black people just rooting for either South Carolina or LSU because they got tired of hearing about Caitlin Clark which ain't got that much to do with Caitlin Clark herself, but it was tired of hearing about Caitlin Clark, and it was a lot of white people showing up because they heard about Caitlin Clark and was rooting for Caitlin Clark. And if you think that ain't got nothing to do with her being white, you're crazy. Like you ain't never been here before? This went like sports always goes when you throw race into it. The NBA built itself up in the 1980s purely on the basis of bird magic. By the way, the highest rated college basketball game of all time remains 79, Indiana State, Michigan State. 
bird magic where this racial subtext was directly in your face. It was right there. That is what they got out of this weekend of this basketball. And, it, and we got there in this like real awkward, like twisted sort of way to me. So not, not got there, but Don Staley, and I think you guys saw this, where Don Staley said the thing about how, you know, our team is not bullies. We are not this. We are not that. However, we're characterized, which is very, you know, much so tied to race. Did not think that she did that right. And this is what I mean. I'm not saying that people don't say those things about her team. I'm not saying that she's not tired of those things being said about her team. But what she did was she got up on the podium and said, one of my friends in the media told me that one of y'all said dot, 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 dot. You got to put a name on it. Or you got to call that person and say something to them. But what happens is once you put it out there at the podium, I believe she told us the truth about what she was told. And I don't know anything about the person who told her, but it's a hard, it's hard for me to believe that somebody would just lie about that thing under those circumstances. That probably happened. But you're not going to have any impact with the statement when you just say it and you don't have something to pin it to, right? Like you don't have something direct for people to hold up and be like, this is the thing that she's talking about. Now, again, maybe there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been written in line with this and she just got tired of it up until that point. That's totally possible. But the method of presentation that she gave was, I heard somebody say something about us. And I don't think that is effective in getting it across and making the point that you want to make. While I am sure there's absolutely something to what she's saying, right? But in terms of rhetorical technique or whatever goal she had for saying that in that moment, I don't think that goal was accomplished with the approach that she took. But once that did happen, race was front and center in a way that it wasn't subconscious no more, right? It wasn't one of those, if you notice it, like now we talking about it. Now we're here. And look, the bottom line is she had a team that went into that game undefeated and has been dominating America. And it wasn't even Caitlin Clark versus undefeated. It was just Caitlin Clark. At least that's how it felt in the way that I was watching the coverage. And again, the coverage and the way I watch it goes through a filter of my brain. So I may not be giving people enough credit, right? I'm trying to spread out and give everybody enough room in this, including myself, to be right and be wrong on certain points. But once we got there, this was a big part of the story. So you get to this LSU game, and look, LSU blew their doors off. Ain't no other way around that. But what jumped out to me about it was Angel Morris, who uh, run point for LSU, was talking about the way that um, Iowa guarded South Carolina. And they basically just walked away from him and dared him to shoot threes. They played him like it was a, a team full of Ben Simmons, basically. That's what they did. Which, honestly, I don't know why more people don't do that in women's basketball, to be perfectly honest. Like I said, LSU shot 19% from three. In that game, South Carolina shot four for 20. Yeah, let them shoot it. They didn't make them. Go from there. They asked Angel Morris about it, and she said that that was disrespectful and that she would remember that going into the LSU-Iowa game. Guys, Angel Morris does not play for South Carolina. (laughs) They didn't disrespect you. (laughs) They was playing against somebody else. And you took that personally. Like Jordan took that personally. I put something on the internet about Angel Reese and I took that personally. The guy was like, you don't know what that mean means. Michael Jordan was taking things personally that didn't have nothing to do with him. And that is exactly what happened in this case. It had nothing to do with them. They walked in and they took it personally. Why do you think that is? Right? <laughs> Why do you think that is? This all turned into, every, oh God, it just turned into a race play. And nobody really, I feel like, having the tools to like parse and untangle everything about it. And so now we get to the game itself. And again, like I said, LSU just blew their doors off. And apparently that three-point thing, they must have really taken it personally Because they are a 19% three-point shooting team and shot 9 for 12 in the first half and over 50% for the whole game. I think it was 11 for 17 is what they shot the whole game from three. That's bananas. That's nuts. They went out there. They decided they was going to do it. I guess, right? Like, that's how it felt. It felt like when Giannis decided he wasn't going to miss no free throws in that game six. Like, it it didn't feel just like a break. It just decided we showed up and we was going to do it. 
And they went from there. Now, a couple things happened in that game I wanted to point out. One, that technical foul they called on Caitlin Clark, who, by the way, played I eight, not great. She cold as all get out. But, uh, yeah, she made 30 points. She also had six turnovers. And all them shots from the parking lot, I'm not sure, are necessarily best for, like, flow of the game and all of that stuff. Like, I mean, she played a pretty good game. I don't think she played badly, but she played a pretty good game. Um, but when she got that technical foul, which, by the way, in college is a tech you're going to get. They don't take everything got no leeway on how much you can get away with in college. You had the ball, the ref waiting on it, and you threw it away because you was frustrated. That'll get you a technical foul. Um, the ref said that there was a language component of it. I don't know. I, obviously, I wasn't able to hear. But they called the technical foul. Did y'all hear how Romero Ruco and Rebecca Lobo, you would have thought they called the technical foul on them and that she was going to go to jail after the game. She said nothing. She did nothing. I think the ref should know. She said she did nothing. Man, come on, man. That's the kind of thing you get called for a tech for. It happens. You can make the argument that maybe they should have let it slide, but come on. You know what time it is, right? They called the tech there. But that was the sign there like, oh, we are watching the Caitlin Clark show now, aren't we? I don't think those people watching the game realized that's how they was kicking it, but that's what we had. And then we have number two, the whole Angel Reese thing. Okay. I want to point out a few things here. Number one, in warm-ups, Angel Reese comes through the line and has somebody put a crown on her head. I don't know if you guys saw that. I'm not here to talk about how whack that is. It is really whack. But we can discuss it on another day, okay? All I'm saying is the woman who is adorned with a crown in warm-ups and seems to have named herself the Bayou Barbie. I feel confident saying that she believes that she's the biggest star in the game. Or at the very least, believes that she should be treated like she's the biggest star in the game. Just going to throw that out there. Don't know these people. Could be wrong. But I feel like that's an appropriate way to use context clues. We all good there? Okay. So you're going to take that person and put them up against this opponent that everybody's talking to while you... Uh, record setter for double doubles in, in an NCAA basketball season. Ain't nobody talking about you because, again, we only got the capacity to talk about one person at a time. All right. So we got that going into this game. You got the LSU shooters who felt disrespected by what Iowa did in a different game. We got that. All right. We get all of this together. And we get LSU blowing their doors off. And some elbows. Like, did you notice the difference in the way that they talked about them elbows? Where Angel Reese, uh, she made a spin move with an elbow. But, like, it looked like where she caught her was not with the elbow, but with the shoulder when she went up for the shot. But then on the other side, the post player from uh, Iowa made that turn and elbowed somebody right there in the throat. And it was just dead on. Not the same as the elbow from Angel Reese. Not the same. Look, like, the sensitivities that black people seem to have about what was going on in this game were not made up. They were not invented. They were not concocted. Like, I totally see where people were coming from in the ways that they decided they were going to roll with this. Because, again, we don't have this happen very much anymore in basketball because white people surrendered. Right? You're just not going to have a situation like this. This is what Duke was in the 80s, right? The squad, not all white dudes, but like a squad of white dudes against the black dudes. This is, this is what I've been talking about. I was talking about then. It popped up here. And by the way, watch those ratings go up. This has happened. Okay. So you get to the end of the game. And Caitlin Clark been good for the, uh, the, the UK see me, right? They say it's the John Cena, but I don't think he even invented that. But, you know, it's the UK see me sort of thing. Caitlin Clark been doing that. It gets to the end of the game with like 15 seconds left. Angel Reese, I would not go so far as to say following because it's not like she followed her into the tunnel, right? But with that tie, the dribble out the ball. 
Angel Reese's mind was all about Caitlin Clark and doing all this stuff. And you see Caitlin Clark moving to get out the way and Angel Reese keep coming up. All right. So I had to ask somebody who's more familiar with this game than I am. And I was just like, look, I need to know this. Do Caitlin be out there talking cash during the game? And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So do not view this necessarily as, oh, because you saw what happened, man. The capes came out. Oh, y'all are picking on poor Caitlin. Caitlin didn't seem to have an issue with it like that. But, oh, the, you, you saw this. They're picking on her. Hey, hey, hey. They just lost the game. They're picking on her. Like, that was the whole dynamic that I felt in the response and the protectionism that came up there. Now, number one, I want to be clear. She was picking on her. Number two, she was doing the most. And number three, if Caitlin Clark would have turned around and stole on her, I would have had no problem with it. That wasn't the time. That wasn't necessary. You could have done a dap up. We moving on about our business at that. No, Angel Reese decided like I was in my moment. No, you decided to get up in her moment too. Because she was having a different kind of moment. You weren't just by yourself celebrating, being happy for you. Come on now, be real about what it is that you was doing. All right. You decided you wanted to antagonize this woman in her lowest moment. I understand why everybody had a problem with it. I don't understand why people acted like it's the worst thing they'd ever seen in their lives. And that's where this went too far. Right? That's where this got to be supremely excessive. And I will tell you how you know that this got excessive. And I will tell you how you can know that so much of this was just about the idea of Caitlin Clark and the protection of the idea of Caitlin Clark. So she got that technical, right? You have your argument about the technical, whatever it is. People all mad about Angel Reese. Okay, cool. Kim Mulkey put her hands on an official and didn't get teched up for it. And I heard and saw far less about that lack of sportsmanship than I saw about Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark. How many people did you see on your timeline going on and on for hours about how classless Kim Mulkey was? Did you see that? Because I didn't. Like, not that nobody said it, but did you see it with nearly the same volume? You think anybody's going to be talking about that after the game? No. It was all somebody was mean to Caitlin. That's all it came down to. And the thing I think that people need to understand and recognize, while I do think that I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say Angel Reese was in the wrong in that moment, but I wouldn't say she was in the right. And I'd also say all you people being like, Caitlin Clark outplayed her, just tell me you don't know nothing about basketball and keep it moving. Because I'm not the biggest women's fan, but I do know this much. Angel Reese had more offensive rebounds by herself than Iowa had as a team. She put up 15, 10 boards, Five assists, three steals, and a block. That's a pretty good game, guys. Right? And no turnovers where Kaylin Clark had six. And so this is something else I figured out about women's ball that's a little bit tricky. We got to figure out how to use different terms. Because you can't use the word big. And so I noticed in one game, they were talking about one of Iowa's post players, and they said she had good size. Good size. That's what they do over there. They say good size. It's a longer discussion about how it is inappropriate to talk about women's bodies in an objectifying fashion in public, which is totally 100% makes sense. But sports is all about the objectification of bodies by definition, which means we don't really have terms to describe women's sports in the same ways that we do men's. And so you got to be careful. So good size. Them Iowa post players had that good size which is to say i imagine going up for rebounds for them it's a long day at work that's all i'm saying and angel reese came in there and pulled down 10 of them and had more offensive rebounds than the whole iowa team had filed her man filed the the woman guarding her out she played she played very 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 well don't don't get this twisted in that regard but what you do need to understand and what is clear from the way LSU responded and from what Don Staley said at the podium and everything else, these women hear the way y'all talk about them. These women hear the way that you refer to them. 
these women see through what a lot of the coding is in all this discussion. And these women knew that they were on the other side of the team of white girls and everything that came with that. They were 100% perfectly aware of that. And it came out in many ways. And so as this sport gets bigger and as more of us start showing up, it is worth it for us to consider that we are cons- we are we doing a lot of the same things and making a lot of the same mistakes that we made in previous times in the ways that we talk about sports and the ways that we watch about sports. And it gets extra dangerous in terms of how we do this because we're talking about women. So so much other toxic stuff comes into play when we talk about how this goes. But in the end, I thought everybody was tripping. Angel Reese was not to be defended for her just being a jerk. There's no way around that. She was being a jerk in an unnecessary fashion. It wasn't like a whole team was doing it, really. Although, I do believe one of them ladies was going down to court doing the gritty uh, at the end of the game. I was okay with that. But no, Angel Reese was out of hand. Um, The response to it was out of hand. A lot, I think, of the, I just don't want Iowa to win. It was not playfully, I'm just rooting for the people. It was a bit out of hand. A lot of it was out of hand. And you know what all that out of hand tells me? Women's basketball, you made it to the big time. Get ready for us to be stupid. Because that's the thing. The more of us that show up, the dumber this is going to be. The more likely they're going to move this into domes and out of arenas and everything else. And you got a chance that we're going to show up and mess up your good thing. Because the one thing about the environment of the women's basketball, overwhelmingly, is so much more positive than the environment of men's basketball. It's so much healthier than the environment that surrounds men's basketball. And I'm telling you, the rest of us showing up to your party is not going to help that. We need to get it figured out because that was a great weekend of basketball and a bad weekend of Americanness. We did what we do all the time, and I guess we're just never going to stop. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Damn, did I talk for 30 minutes about that? I had no other choice. Just so you know, it was really that much. Anyway, I said I was going to talk about uh, some mistake the NBA made, so I'm going to make that right fast. Collective bargaining agreement, they say that now players can do two things that are very interesting. Right, well, there's a couple things that's happening. One, they're making it harder for teams that have already spent a lot of money to acquire more players which is basically to stop like the Warriors from going over the cap and still be able to get better, which is leaning in further to this NBA idea of parity that I don't think anybody ever asked for or really wanted, but here we are. Okay, so there's that. They had another thing, though, that said that players can now do a couple of interesting things. One of them is players can now buy equity stakes in teams. Number two, players can now invest and be spokespeople for cannabis companies. But three, they can also be spokespeople for gambling companies. Okay. Now, I want to say that the players being able to buy into teams, I asked a league executive about that. And what he told me was, yes, they can do that at very small levels, which is that players can invest in funds that then invest in teams. But they cannot directly invest in a team. So you invest in a team at some level and a fund at some level and then the fund invests in the team. That is what is allowed. So to me, that's not really a real earth shattery game changing situation. The gambling thing. Did you see this story where Brad Beal damn near went to jail or maybe he did go to jail because he stole off on somebody for being mad at him about putting $1,300? Like he said he lost $1,300 on the game? Hey man, I'm telling you for all you players, all money ain't good money. Every single one of you, all money ain't good money. You do not want to put your face on a gambling house. There's just nothing good that's going to come out of that for you other than maybe a check. And I guess they throwing some big checks around to get guys to show up there. But I'm telling you, man, this thing where these people really feel like the players owe money on the gambles, this isn't, you, you, don't, you don't want to be the person encouraging people to gamble, no matter what. Because when it go wrong, 
I'm not saying it's your fault, but who cares about what's right? It might be your fault. Ain't I just no? I I was shocked that the league was willing to go along with that. And what strikes me is that the NBA is also now doing. It feels very NCAA NIL ish. Oh yeah, we'll let you go get money from other people. You know, you ain't got to come get it from us all the time. You can go get it from other people. And I'm just like, nah, dog, don't do it. Don't do it. Though I do like the idea of maybe, just maybe, some player, instead of uh, taking his money from like MGM or FanDuel or DraftKings or one of those, he just started doing sponsorships for a local bookie. I don't see what the difference is myself. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now, if you haven't heard. All right, this first story is from business. Hi, this is Molly Lipson. I'm a freelance writer from the UK. In 2020, people started leaving their jobs en masse in what's been termed the Great Resignation. Staff turnover hit an all-time high in 2022, with over 50 million people quitting their jobs. The pandemic was a catalyst more than a cause. It brought to the surface a long-standing problem in the workplace. People weren't happy. It came down in part to feeling unvalued and underappreciated. A Gallup report found that only 30% of people received recognition or praise for doing good work in a one-week period. A recent report by the Achievers Workforce Institute found that a staggering 79% of employees would rather stay in a job where they feel valued, even if it meant making less money. The survey also found that employees who didn't feel valued for their work were 39% more likely to say they will job hunt this year. Tara Alice, Director of Research and Economics at McKinsey UK in Ireland, told me that employers are struggling to really grasp the importance of actively praising and valuing their staff, in part because it feels harder to address than a simple salary increase. Dr Natalie Baumgartner from the Achievers Workforce Institute, however, explains that actually it's not that hard to do, but it does need to be authentic. Employees know when praise is insincere. An OC Tanner survey found that 43% of respondents felt like the praise they received at work was an empty gesture. To counter this, praise needs to be regular, specific, and given both publicly and privately. All the evidence shows that putting time into thinking about easy and low-effort ways to incorporate praise and staff recognition is well worth it. After all, telling an employee well done is itself a job well done. So, there's something interesting in that. Um... One, I love Molly saying, I am a writer from the UK. We know. We know. I can't tell you what part, you know what I'm saying, but we know. Um, I am intrigued for a lot of these workplaces. Like, so we just wrapped our season of game theory. And at another point, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I realize at the end of every season, and I know it before, but I don't have as much time to focus on it. Like, it's very important to me that people feel like they enjoy working on the show. You know what I mean? Like, I I want it to be something that when people tell people that they work on it, that they feel good about. Because I know what it sounds like when people don't. You know, I want it to sound like something they're proud of or whatever. Like, that's, that's really important to me. And I'm not the greatest at positive reinforcement, but I do try periodically, even if it's just a slack to the whole group, just be like, hey, man, we did a great show. You know, way to get that going, you know. Um, and it's small and it doesn't take very much. And I'm surprised that so much of what has gone on here has, you know, in workplaces has been people realizing that folks need that and actually doing it or something. But I think that something that has happened and I've mentioned this about sports before, but I think that this is important everything, everywhere else. Something that I think that we forget is that a lot fewer people go to the army than they used to. But that's important because basically how to run things and like the attitude that you're supposed to have about tasks, especially think about this in sports, like think about how much of that really just comes straight down from the military. Say, yes, sir, do it, keep it moving. Like, it's not an emotional thing or whatever it is. Very little of this is personal. You just do it and then you go, right? You do your job and go home. And like, I find at my age, I'm 42 going on 43, I have a bit of a generational disconnect with younger people who expect their job to love them, right? Who expect their boss to love them. No, that's not what this is. It's a trade and then we go in and then we do it. Um, But you really can't play by those rules anymore because people don't expect to be treated like that. Right, We got a lot of special snowflakes out here. And I'm not saying that judgmentally in the ways that people think. I mean, though, that we have a lot more people who were raised to believe that they are unique and special and thereby should be treated as unique and special. And you got to figure out how to navigate group dynamics around the fact 
that these people believe that they're unique, special snowflakes, right? They mean, the theory I've always had is this is a result of the fact that people have smaller families, right? When you were, when you want a six, you got to let a lot more stuff go than when you want a one. When you're an only child, there ain't never no food on the table that you don't eat. Because it doesn't make any sense. We can work around that. When it's six of y'all, somebody going to be eating lima beans they can't stand. You know, is the other kid's birthday? Oh, y'all don't like the same stuff. Bad news for you. You know what I mean? But that's that's what it's going to be. But no, I do think there's something to be said that you do. When people do a good job, you need to let them know that they've done a good job. You have to do that. And I do think that's a very important part in the workplace. The question comes down. What about when they out here f***ing up? Because they want the truth when they're doing well. They want lies when they're not. You know, and it's, hey, you know, the praise should be private and public. Okay. So when you drop the ball, that one's just private. And I get it, right? Nobody wants to be chastised publicly. There's no benefit to it. I would avoid that if at all possible in charge. Like what I would consider to be legitimately chastising. Sometimes you got to say, hey, this thing, dot, dot, dot. But if we're talking about chastising, no, nah, you shouldn't do that. But no, nah, you got to make people feel good about what they're doing at this point in time. And if they don't, yeah, they'll go work somewhere else. But the question you need to ask sometimes is, you might want them gone anyway. This next story comes in from Florida. I'm Candace McDuffie, and I'm a senior writer at The Root. I wanted to alert your listeners to what's happening at North Shore Elementary School, located in St. Petersburg, Florida. The 1998 Disney film, Ruby Bridges, which tells the true story of the Black first grader who integrated an all-white elementary school in New Orleans, was banned for being shown to students. Ruby Bridges was shown at the school in front of second graders, On March 2nd, it was required that each child have a signed permission slip to watch the film. Emily Conklin, a white parent of a second grade student at North Shore Elementary, filed a formal complaint days later stating that the movie wasn't appropriate for young children. In addition to refusing to allow her child to see it, Conklin admitted to seeing just the first 50 minutes of the 96-minute film. In her grievance, she stated that the theme of Ruby Bridges was racism And after watching it, students would learn racial slurs as well as how white people hate black people. Conklin also noted how critical reviews of the film explain how angry and aggressive white people were in the movie. She also said it is more suitable for an eighth grade audience, not second graders. Conklin noted that the movie was an R when it was actually rated PG. Shortly after her complaint, school officials banned Ruby Bridges from being shown to students pending an evaluation by a review committee. This decision comes after a Florida law that was passed last year, championed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, prohibiting curriculum that makes students feel guilty and personally responsible for systemic racism. Ricardo Davis, president of Concerned Organization for Quality Education for Black Students, wrote a letter denouncing the removal of the film. Black and brown children and their parents were not considered, he said. Davis also said that after this incident, He is skeptical that these diverse communities can be served fairly and equitably. Whoa, ho, 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 that last part. First of all, let's go with this story comes to us from Florida. It could have been anything. Now, this uh, this last thing I heard there, that I uh, I, I can't remember if that Davis dude was white or black. They said he's not sure these communities can be served equitably or fairly. Guys, you realize what he just said, right? That is a half step away from separate but equal and i if you ain't been paying attention there ain't nothing that they used to do that can't happen again i just really want you to keep this in mind like i was reading something the other day about all these different places that talk about like potentially succeeding right and you hear this this comes from both sides of it right like you'll get i mean i'm from texas somebody always trying to succeed at all times but then you'll also have the dumbass liberals that'll come out here well we should just let the south go away and i'm like yeah so what about my people down there you just go you just go you just gonna abandon them you you just go like look the 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 confederacy was pretty bad when it was white folks and slaves but uh, being free black in the Confederacy didn't sound like it would have been that great neither. So that's what you're going to do. You're just going to be like, all right, cool. Y'all got it. Y'all on your own. 
Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, what jumps out to me about this is, trust me, if anybody involved with greenlighting this movie thought this movie was something that white kids could not handle, they would not have made it. And you know how I know that? It's a Disney movie! Disney! This is not a 40 Acres and a Mule production. There was no rest in peace John Singleton thingy at the end of it. This is made by Disney. The people who give us Tarzan and the people who give me checks. I am not saying anything critical about this operation. What I am saying is it ain't revolutionary. Okay? They didn't build the Epcot Center on the revolution. All right? Space Mountain did not get there by making white people feel bad about themselves. In fact, that is the closest thing that Disney does to making white people feel bad about themselves. Make them think they might pee on themselves when they on Space Mountain. That's as far as it's going, guys. That's as far as it's going. We can't even get a Disney movie in about a little girl who had people messing with her for literally no good reason. Simply because she existed. Wow. This next story comes in from uh, commercial real estate. My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. I had a story that came out this week that was about the tremors in the commercial real estate market. As many of you know, there was a crisis earlier this month at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, two mid-sized regional banks that saw sudden runs in their deposits that appeared triggered by the decline in the value of their U.S. Treasury holdings. Um, but now there's some concern that the next stage in this saga could be uh, the impact of commercial real estate, as many people know, as everyone knows, I guess, the uh, number of people and office workers who have stopped going into the office has really declined, and a lot of mortgages and a lot of short-term leases will be rolling over in the next couple of years. And that could throw into question the value of the $20 trillion commercial real estate market if the value of these offices suddenly goes down um, because all these businesses decide that they don't want to renew their leases. That could trigger a scenario where banks suddenly see their balance sheets thrown out of whack. We should stress that there's a lot of evidence that this crisis will be avoided and will not look like the housing crisis in 2008, but some banking officials and people at the Federal Reserve, Treasury Department, and FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, are beginning to look at this as a potential issue and one that uh, we might want to keep an eye on. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> what we about to do because <laughs> I mean this commercial real estate thing been brewing we've been seeing it it's been right there waiting on it and it's I guess I feel like though in large part it has a lot to do with where you are Um, you know because those places where the world never really shut down like yes they're using less space but it's not as drastic as say a place like this like in New York and that stuff costs money. And the, here's the biggest thing about it when it comes to like the idea of like the fall of commercial real estate. Anytime I think about buying something here, and I talk to my agent who's a native New Yorker, he always says the same thing. Nobody's ever gone broke investing in New York real estate. Which was a safe adage to have for a very long time. But I bring that up to say that a lot of these people with the money in commercial real estate they that wasn't a risk you know what i'm saying like this is even if it wasn't gonna work out right now this was gonna be good people always gonna need office space maybe not maybe not now of course i say in a place like new york you may not be able to charge the same amount you may not get the same returns and it'll be its own problem but hey it's about time for that kooky crazy idea of looking like places for people to live and i just want to throw this out here by the way It is in these times that people like to talk about the lack of what they call affordable housing. And it is a problem. 
all over this country. And it is a problem in New York City for a number of reasons. And we need to get some more affordable housing in this city. However, I just like to throw it out there. We could use a little bit more of that uh, unaffordable housing out this bad boy, too. I've been looking at Zillow lately, and the inventory is not great for anybody. Anybody at all. And so, you know, while you're out here thinking about it, make some affordable housing. How about just making some bigger housing? A little bit more space. Because I'll be looking at the somewhat unaffordable housing out here. It be real small. Your boy, six, three and a half, six, four, and would like to have a bathtub he could fit in. It's a little bit hard to find. Let's turn some of this office space, not simply into something luxurious, but something functionally luxurious. See, I'm just letting you know, there's other problems in the world that y'all hadn't thought about, that y'all ain't thinking about. You know what I'm saying? Y'all don't, y'all, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all don't get that. And I get it. Y'all don't care what I'm going through. But there's somebody out here listening to this right now who feels my pain. And I just want you to understand this about New York City. It's a little bit different. I was talking to Pablo about this one time. And he has a friend who's a pretty famous person. And he said he went over to the person's house. And the person just bought a $20 million house. It does not have a porch. Because in New York, even if you spend $20 million... You can't get everything you want. How did I turn commercial real estate into something about me? I don't know. I just felt like it. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. All right. The voicemail topic for this week is tell us about the best April Fool's prank that you've ever had pulled on you or that you have pulled. This first one, I would have hated to get this prank pulled on me. <laughs> Why do you hey, sound Bo, like that? This is Jermaine from South Carolina, and April Fool's is one of those holidays that I never really got down with, didn't understand how people still get caught straight into their 20s, but maybe I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know April was rolling around. And my current wife, who was not my wife at the time, I think we were probably engaged, but we weren't all the way there yet, uh, decided that she was going to get her pregnant friend to go ahead and make a positive pregnancy test and hand it to me for April Fool's Day. And she did. And I can say for sure she did not get the reaction that she would have hoped for, even though she knew she was pulling a joke. So, yeah, I don't think I was as excited as she hoped. Let me just put it that way. We've got three beautiful kids now, so it all panned out in the end, but I'm just going to tell you right now, April Fool's is for children, and it should only be children's jokes, not jokes involving having children. Love the show, man. Appreciate it. So here's the thing. I feel like, like when you call up and do the voicemails and stuff or whatever, like I feel like we friends, you know what I'm saying? Like anytime we've done like an unblock me and we talk to the people, I feel like people are friends. And I got a rule, generally speaking. I ain't going to say nothing untoward to my friend about his wife. And I don't know how I can respond to what I just heard without violating that rule. (laughs) I just, there's just no way. It's just not. I'm glad it all worked out. I really, really am. Because I would have been out. Uh, this next one is from Derek from Charlotte. All right, so Bo, love the show. This is Derek from Charlotte. So a few years ago, I had to work a little bit south of here. Um, so I'm driving down. I get a ticket in this little town called South Hill, South Carolina. <laughs> No big deal. I'll get it paid. Of course, I forget. A couple years go by. I'm driving to go see some girl in Kings Mountain, Shelby, North Carolina, somewhere out there. Get pulled over there like, sir, your license is suspended. Like, can't be. I haven't gotten a ticket in years. It's good. And then they hit me. 
I knew where it was from. No big deal. I'll pay that. I get busy, forget again. So I have a Friday off one day. Outside, I'm going to go to Shelby uh, Courthouse, pay this ticket, be good. So I get all dressed up, head to the courthouse and go pay this ticket. The people upstairs send me downstairs. I get downstairs. They send me back up. They go back and forth. I go to the bathroom, come out. There's like a deputy sheriff, big swole brother. It's sitting out there. So I walk up. He's like, yo, you dead? Yeah, I'm dead. He was like, yeah, you got anything in your pockets? It's like, maybe I pack my pockets and go to read. He's like, no, 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 I'll check, I'll check. I was like, okay. So he packs my pockets. I'm thinking it's odd. He tells me to turn around and put my hands behind my back. I literally laugh in his brother's face because it's April 1st. It's got to be an April Fool's joke. I've been smiling at everybody. I've been cool. I figured he thought I had a good sense of humor. I'll be the guy to play the joke on. Yo, didn't hit me that this was not an April Fool's joke until I'm in the cruiser handcuffed, headed to the jail annex across the city. So I get in there. Really stuff is setting in was I'm getting fingerprinted and inputted in. They take my stuff, take my phone, and, you know, they put me in a pod. I go into, like, my little, to, like, cell three or whatever number it was. And the girl running the joint, she was like, um, could you close the door? And I was, like, on TV, these joints closed by themselves. You want me to put myself in jail? That seems weird. <laughs> So I have to close the door at this little town jail, lock myself in. I go to leave the, you know, leave the little IVIX number thing where you have to leave for the collect calls from somebody because I'm going to get you out. But I'm playing too much because I always play too damn much. I leave it's like a, you have a collect call from <laughs> Derek because I thought it was funny. Terrible idea on April Fool's Day because nobody, I've talked to my friends, all of them can tell you, they thought I was joking because why would they think I was serious? It's April Fool's Day and I'm leaving a stupid voicemail like that or leaving my little collect call number like that. So turns out, long story short, my ex had to be the one to get me out. She was out of state up in D.C., so she had to pay the whole thing, not 10%. I was in jail for almost six and a half hours right up against the wall of being there later on Friday, which you know you don't want that because that means you in jail for the weekend. So, yeah, that's my April Fool's Day um Joke that was not a joke. It was just I had terrible luck on April first. All right, thanks a lot. Love the show. Peace. Yo, the whole way I was making faces because I was like, "Yo, we don't play like this, right?" And I was thinking about the time. I'll tell you that story in a second. But I was just like, "We don't joke like this. We don't joke like this." And then when it made that, wait, I'm going to jail. Turn. Wow, that's an amazing story. But no, one year at Christmas, this is about ten years ago. Um, my brother had invited his mans from growing up over to the crib. And one of my partners was there with me. So me, uh, by time for dinner. So you know how the holidays are. We went and took a walk, right? So we go, we take a walk, come back, wash hands. You know what I'm saying? We sitting down. So you know, you know, you know where we at. And then somebody asked, uh, I think my dad asked, he's like, well, David, uh, what have you been doing? He's like, you know, still police. And we like, police? Like, yo, y'all got the cops up in here and didn't tell nobody? What are you talking about? You you know how we live. Like, what are you doing? And so he then tells this story about when he first got on the job, he uh, pulled up behind one of his homies and saw his license plate and then pulled the lights and pulled him over and got on the mic and told him to get out the car and made him lay down on the ground and the whole nine only to walk up like, ha, 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 it's me, funny, funny. And I thought that's where this story was going, right? Or like, oh, man, so when did the strippers come, right? Like, I, I think everything he had there just seemed like it was going to turn good. And then, no, it, it, it went the wrong way. All right, this last one's from uh, Cam from South California. Hey, Abel Money. Uh, this is Cameron from Southern California. I uh, love the show. Um wanted to share a story about uh, April Fool's prank that was done on me twice uh one after the other so one year and then another year it was middle school no high school um and i was kind of in a relationship at that point you know like more like a thing nothing really serious um but on two separate occasions i got dumped as an april fool's joke and mind you again i'm in high school so that's like the end of the world um and it was odd because the first time of course was totally unexpected she just came and she's like, hey, I don't want to be with you anymore. And I was distraught. And five minutes later, she texted me back, April Fool's. So then about a year later, I yeah, imagine so, I'm kind of with somebody else. You know, we're just friends talking to each other. And 
uh, yeah, you could say we're together. And I told her about that. I said, oh, I hate it when people play, play an April Fool's joke on you and they're breaking up with you. Like, that's ridiculous. I don't see why that should ever happen. And sure enough, she plays that same trick. And I didn't realize what day it was. I should have known. I mean, I just, I, let, I pretty much gave her the, the fuel, but I didn't know. And again, high school me, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life if I'm not with this person? So I ended up telling her I love you. And let's just say she said April Fool's, uh, but that was a lot, pretty much the last time that we were ever together because she was not ready to be in love at, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. So I, I've since learned. Uh, no more, no more, uh, be attentive to the date on April Fool's when it comes to relationships, but also don't jump into saying, I love you. Thanks, Amani. Have a good one. Bye. Hey, man, when she said, I love you, I mean, you said, I love you, and she said, April Fool's, you need to be like, yeah, me too. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I, I'm noticing April Fool's jokes that are done by people with inadequate foresight. I do remember the one time my, d- <laughs> my daddy was picked up a hitchhiker because he's of that age where that's not a ridiculous thing to do. But as I recall, the hitchhiker uh, turned out to be an escaped convict. So anyway, a few days later, my sister calls up and tells him a story about how she picked up a convict and my daddy's going off and she is dying laughing and he's like, oh, damn. And that is because April Fool's Day means something different in the Jones house. You think of April Fool's Day, it is my parents' anniversary. I'm not making that up. But ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for listening to The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Parker Owens and Dan Stancic handling everything behind the scenes. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you to our If You Haven't Heard contributors. Thanks to Molly Lipson. Uh, Check out her story for Insider about positive feedback helping the workplace. Thanks to Candace McDuffie of The Root. Check out her story about Florida banning a Ruby Bridges movie at an elementary school. And, well, it's in St. Petersburg. Got to be particular. And thanks to Jeff Stein of The Washington Post. Check out his story about how commercial real estate is impacted in the banking industry remember follow the right time rate us review us give us five stars you only give us four stars i'm inclined to believe you are a hater and we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days take it easy thanks for checking out the right time with bomani jones podcast you can listen or follow on the espn app or wherever you listen to podcasts the right time with bomani jones